It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 12th, 2008, the day before Columbus Day. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Recently, I was in a conversation about passwords, what makes a good one and how to create one that you can remember. Those are the two key considerations. The password has to be something that is difficult for someone else to guess, but it has to be easy for you to remember. If you can't remember it, you write it down. You write it down, that makes it easy for somebody else to find. Well, one of the participants in the discussion had a simple, elegant solution that I'd like to share with you. These are her words. I've used the same simple password on most things for a number of years, but coming up with one like mine can take a bit of thought. However, it's both non-obvious, not a birthday or something like that, and it is something that has about four permutations that can be easily changed, but still leaves me with a lot less to remember. I got the idea from a friend of mine who used to work at a bank, where all personnel were required to change their personal passwords once a month. She used her long-deceased father's now obsolete social security number, which she knew as well as her own, spelling out one number in it and changing back and forth between which numbers she spelled monthly. For example, one spelled out, then the numerals two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one. Next month it might be the numeral one, followed by TWO, then three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one. She could also capitalize one of the letters, so that made enough permutations to make it easy to change, and she then asked for my opinion. You know, permutations are good, and the one I've just described is particularly good because it does create a password that is easy to remember, it's complex, and it's hard to guess. The best passwords from a technical standpoint are at least 15 characters long and contain both upper and lower case letters, along with numbers and symbols. The resulting number of permutations is a perfectly huge, uh, once again, apologies to Stephen King, I just love that, uh, a password that would be 15 characters, well, that would be 15 to the 72nd power permutations, because you have 26 lowercase letters, 26 uppercase letters, 10 numbers, and at least 10 symbols that are legal to use. So, huge. The trouble is that passwords like that tend to be something like uppercase U, 85, lowercase Q, pound sign, 293, lowercase P, uppercase T, uppercase M, uppercase T, uppercase Y, 6, lowercase H. Could you remember that? Or how about uppercase K, uppercase D, ampersand, uppercase N, uppercase L, exclamation point, asterisk, caret, uppercase I, 6, percent sign, left square bracket, 1, lowercase O, lowercase T. There's no way that any human is going to be able to remember either one of those. The password's going to be written down on a post-it note and stuck to the monitor. Now a more cautious person will write it down and stick it in a desk drawer. The really cautious people will write it down, stick it in a desk drawer, and put it under something. So to some techno-wizards, passwords like that seem smart. But really, they're dumb. I have used passwords that include the name of a long-dead cat the address of the house where I grew up, and my older daughter's nickname. I can even leave myself notes that would say something like, St. C. Cat, Bell Fountain Address, and number one dot nickname. I'll know exactly what that means, but I challenge you to figure out, from what I just said, the components of the password. Now, I could obscure it a bit more. I could say, W-O-M-P-Cat, 1964 address, E-L, animal nickname. 
So now you've got two sets of clues. Can you figure that one out? Well, in this case, the password, and I've never used this password anywhere, and I never will now that I've made it public, is Finster517Lizard, with the F and the L capitalized. Finster is a cat who came to live with me in 1972. I was living in St. Clairsville, Ohio, working at WOMP Radio. The name came from Rocky and Bullwinkle. The house I lived in when I was growing up had a street address of 517. Because there are so many nicknames for Elizabeth, the name of my older daughter, it's unlikely that anyone would ever guess the one that we used occasionally was Lizard. Lizard? Okay, Liz, and she was born just before the Great Blizzard of 1978. So, easy for me to remember, hard for anybody else to guess. I've also seen recommendations for long, plain text passwords. Length is actually more important than using multiple character sets, so you might have a password like this. And keep in mind, no spaces between words. It was a dark and stormy night. Twas brillig and the slithy toves, four score and seven years ago. Or out of the night that covers me. Now, if you want to get tricky, you could append maybe your college apartment's address at the end, so then you'd have, it was a dark and stormy night, 1653. And twas brillig and the slithy toves, 1653, and so on. And no, 1653 was never my address anywhere. And no, I also don't use any of those bits of text for any account. For a lot of low-priority accounts, I have a single, relatively short password that does not change. Eventually, I started adding a prefix to add a bit of security. I try to create secure passwords, but I don't change them as regularly as I should. And I don't spend a lot of time worrying about them. If you keep rogue applications off your computer, and so far I've been successful at doing that, relatively simple passwords are sufficient for things that aren't terribly important. And if you allow your computer to be compromised, then even some huge password isn't going to help you. Oh no, what's this? They're suspending my internet? Well, that's what the notice said. It had been trapped in my spam slop bucket, and I was about to delete it because it had sailed into my harbor waving lots of red flags. But then I decided to take a slightly closer look because I wanted to see what the spammer was up to. Not something good, clearly. So let's dissect this one. Here's the entire message. It came from the ICS monitoring team at postmaster at craighall.com. Your Internet access is going to get suspended. The Internet Service Provider Consortium was made to protect the rights of software authors, artists. We conduct regular wiretapping on our networks to monitor criminal acts. We are aware of your illegal activities on the Internet, which were originating from... I think they meant to have something there, but it was blank. You can check the report of your activities for the past six months that we have attached. We strongly advise you to stop your activities regarding the illegal downloading of copyrighted material of your Internet access will be suspended. Sincerely, ICS Monitoring Team. Now, that's exactly word for word what it said. Your Internet access is going to get suspended. There's one fairly large error there and one subtle one. Internet is a proper noun, so it should be capitalized. It wasn't. There's no period at the end of the sentence, but in this post-literate age, I suppose expecting a period would be a bit much. But is going to get suspended just isn't good business English. A real ISP would have lawyers who look over these kinds of standard messages, and lawyers just wouldn't pass that kind of language. Moving on to the next sentence. The Internet Service Provider Consortium was made to protect the rights of software authors artists. I would suggest that the guy buy a dictionary. 
The writer misspelled consortium. The rest of the sentence is ungrammatical. Consortiums aren't made but set up or established. And then there was a comma between authors and artists. There should have been an and. Next sentence. We conduct regular wiretapping on our networks, comma, to monitor criminal acts. You don't need the comma there. Wiretapping is illegal except when it's conducted under the warrantless wiretapping rules currently in force. In any event, no ISP can conduct wiretapping on its own. We are aware of your illegal activities on the Internet, which we're originating from. Well, we're back to lowercasing Internet in this sentence, and apparently the spam fisher wanted to send a domain name or perhaps an IP address, some sort of identity at the end of the sentence. The fact that he doesn't know how to operate his own little program is another large red flag. And it would help if he would spell which with an H. You can check the report of your activities in the past six months that we have attached. Uh, how do they attach a month? Wait, they have six months. Okay. We strongly advise you to stop your activities regarding the illegal downloading of copyrighted material of your Internet access will be suspended. All right. If you have six of something, avocados, camels, months, you have a plural. The noun following six should have been plural. Six months. Dumb mistake. Next sentence just doesn't make sense as written. The of probably should have been an or. So more flags there. Uh, More clues. Where did the message come from? Well, it came from Canada. Now, the company that provides my Internet access is headquartered in Denver, and the last time I checked, Denver was in Colorado, and Colorado was still one of our western states, not a province of Canada. So while the fishy spam was in my spam trap, I took a look at the message source and observed a zip file. That's the attachment referenced in the message, of course. I assumed that a zip file would contain a Trojan horse and would try to turn my computer into a zombie, and that is exactly the case. AVG antivirus wouldn't even let me take a look at it, but I didn't really want to look at it anyway. I just wanted to confirm that it was bad news. I took a look at the message source, and on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see an image of that. The message was received from an IP address that is indeed in Canada. It belongs to Eastlink, a small Internet service provider with offices in Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island. Because the IP address belongs to Eastlink, it seems reasonable to assume that somebody in eastern Canada has a zombied machine attached to that ISP. The message was sent to me as bill.blin at 610tech.net. Now, that address does still work for me, even though I'm no longer associated with WTVN and haven't been for a long time. So it's kind of an amusing. They have a very old email address, one I no longer use, one that I would never use to sign up for anything, and they don't have my name. They just call me client. And then who is this Craig Hall, anyway? Actually, the question should be, what is Craig Hall? Craig Hall is a student living facility in Chico, California. Wait, how did we get to Chico, California? We were just in eastern Canada, now we're in the western U.S. I figure that Chico must be a couple of miles down the road from Harpo, a few miles over from Zeppo, and adjacent to Groucho. If you got that joke, you're older than you look. Craig Hall apparently had nothing to do with any of this. It was just the domain name forged in the from address. (laughs) That one was just too easy. All right, seriously now. Last week, I mentioned in passing that I would address the topic of politics this week. By way of background, I received two very gently worded complaints about my discussion of the break-in at Sarah Palin's Yahoo email account. And incidentally, the guy who apparently did that has been caught. As part of the report, I mentioned that the use of such an account for conducting state business would be illegal. Two people felt strongly enough about that to suggest political motivations for the story. And, as I told one of the writers, I hesitated when writing that story, but it's the same story I would have written had it been a Democratic governor of a state. Politics really made no difference to that story. But, 
I can certainly understand why somebody might think that this was yet another instance of my interjecting a political comment into a report that shouldn't be about politics. This is, after all, a technology report, and I have made certain statements that were clearly political in nature. I shouldn't have done that, and I apologize for slipping up. I do promise to try harder to avoid them in the future. So, from now on, I will omit the gratuitous political comments. But when politicians do something uncommonly good or something uncommonly bad, and those things involve technology, I still will mention them. In nerdly news, if you're thinking about a new Mac PowerBook, you might want to wait just a bit, like maybe until this coming Tuesday. I hereby predict that Apple will have some news that will interest you then. And no, I'm not psychic. It's just that last week Apple announced plans to announce something this week. It's a trick they've learned from politicians. You hold a news conference to announce that you're going to have something to say at a later date, so you get two stories for the price of one. The real announcement is scheduled for the day after Columbus Day, Tuesday, October 14th, and the topic probably will be notebook computers. Not that Apple has ever employed red herring strategy, of course, but an image with the announcement shows a notebook computer and includes the subtext, the spotlight turns to notebooks, so I think I'm fairly safe in making this prediction. The event will be held in what Apple calls its Town Hall, which is in Cupertino, California, at Apple's main campus. Online rumors suggest there won't be any large cosmetic changes, but that Apple will announce a more efficient method of assembling computers, in China, of course. Another big change that's rumored is swapping out the full-sized DVI connection for a mini-DVI connector. Is that a big change? Well, it could be. The smaller you make components, the smaller you can make the computer. Used to be I bought the argument that piracy really does hurt people. I thought that sharing songs was illegal, immoral, unethical, nasty, and one sure path to hell. Well, now I'm not so sure, and I haven't been sure for a long time. Yes, I have downloaded some content of questionable origin, but when I find something that I like, I generally buy it. Research suggests that I am not alone. Well, now the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is trying to push through legislation that's even worse than the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. They claim that piracy has cost the U.S. 750,000 jobs and has caused $250 billion worth of financial losses. The letter from the Chamber of Commerce doesn't cite any sources for its figures. A recent article in Ars Technica sheds a little light on the numbers. If you are an economist, you may already know that $250 billion is more than the combined U.S. revenue of the movie, music, and software industries. That would make it difficult for piracy to cost $250 billion, since people are still buying CDs and DVDs and they do still seem to be going to theaters. I don't get too excited about this nonsense, though the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is simply mouthing support for the Pro-IP Bill, which stands for the cutesy congressional aim, Prioritizing Resources and Organization for Intellectual Property Act. That's a bill that seems to be reincarnated every session of Congress. Fortunately, the House and the Senate have enough members with enough brain cells that the bill dies every time it surfaces. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 12th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.